Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up in this episode... You guys are daydreaming if you think you're going to pull this off. It had to go. I think that the world has changed and it might take generations to shift back slowly to that point and best identify, isolate, contact trace. That can be done within a contained sporting environment. People who are regularly active are less likely to be ill and to fall ill and have infections than people who are not. Welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. My name is Mike Finch. I'm your host, and as usual, I'm here with Professor Ross Tucker. But uh, as we are recording this, like the rest of the world, in fact, I think three quarters of the world are holed up in their houses in some sort of isolation. Um, And wherever you are, we hope that you are dealing with this and getting through it and finding ways to entertain yourselves, staying safe and looking after each other. And uh, Ross and I only live probably about three kilometers away from each other, but we are talking to each other on Skype today. And as you can imagine, uh, it's not exactly the best uh, Wi-Fi signal at the moment because we're all operating from our homes at the moment and we've had undersea cable problems here in South Africa. So if we do have a bit of a breakup here and there and uh, we do lose you, we do apologize. It's not a normal, uh, the new normal is here and it involves our podcast as well. And I uh, really hope that all of you that are listening to this right now uh, are staying nice and safe and we give you a chance to kind of uh, not stop talking about the coronavirus, but uh, certainly talking about it in a sporting context and the impact that it's going to have um, on the world of sport over the next 18 months and probably in the world of sport for many years to come. And I think it's going to be an interesting discussion. Ross and I have had a bit of preparation, as you can imagine, before this uh, this uh, podcast and uh, just to let you know we're not going to be talking about the the sort of the the, the medical science around corona it really is just about the sports side of things and uh, we've got some some nice bit of service at the end of it and of course it, the, the reason why we wanted to get into the service because there are lots of occasions and Ross I want to bring you into this around the world the way that the different countries have dealt with this virus um, has been should they totally isolate? Like here in South Africa, we're not even allowed to go for a run or a ride. We can only go to the shops or go to the doctor or go to the pharmacy and other places around the world, like the UK at the time of doing this podcast, you were still able to do one form of exercise a day. Although I've seen on the BBC today that there are threats that they might take that away because people aren't observing the rules. Um, but Ross, before we get into that, how are you doing on your side, just three kilometers away from me? Yeah, how's it, Mike? Yeah, all good. Uh, I uh... Um, it's easy to get locked in and you can't do the things that give you pleasure but I keep reminding myself and it's, it's true I'm perhaps less affected than many people uh, because I, I work from home all the time and so I have a, a routine for how to do that so it hasn't, it hasn't been as disruptive and so as much as I miss going for runs and going to the gym and coffee meetings and going up the mountain these are things that I guess one can do without. And I just think of all the people who are affected much more. I mean, imagine you're in a service industry or 
the business, like, I mean, a lot of friends and colleagues are physios or personal trainers, and they're completely cut off from their normal routines and their source of income and business owners. And then obviously you think about people that are directly affected, um, people who've caught this disease and, and uh, potentially had the worst case consequences. So I, I guess I found myself fortunate. I, I hope that this doesn't persist. I really miss sports. I don't know about you. But yeah. I don't know what to do with myself on weekends. That's why I'm sitting here now on a Sunday afternoon talking to you. <laughs> I, I think one of the most uh, sort of the, you know, when you realize when it gets serious is when you look at the sport, we have a lot of very good sports channels here in South Africa. And of course, uh, I'm a mad cycling fan and all the cycling events are now not on TV anymore and all we're seeing is reruns of Wimbledon from 1978 right through to now and reruns of the Super Rugby and all sorts of soccer matches. So, you know, the live sport um, is something that I, I really do miss and uh, I don't really watch that much sport anymore purely because there isn't anything to watch. So that was really the time and I thought, you know, this thing is... This thing is going to be around for a while um, and it's going to impact us all for a while. And I think most recently we saw, and it was a kind of a, a slightly delayed announcement, but the Olympic Games eventually deciding that they were going to postpone the Games to next year. Were you surprised that it took so long for the Olympics to say, well, it's not going to happen this year? No, not really. It's, a, it's such a big event that um, I can understand why you would want to hold out as long as possible. In hindsight, and actually even with foresight, in about mid-February, definitely early March, it was pretty inevitable that they were going to have to do it. So you did look at it. I mean, I certainly looked at it from the outside and said, well, you guys are daydreaming if you think you're going to pull this off. It had to go. And I think it was fairly obvious as far back as mid-Feb that it was going to. But I can understand why you would want to you would want to hold out. In the end, they made the right decision. Uh if they took a, a slightly surreptitious route to get to that decision, because it got to the point where even if by some miracle this virus disappears from the earth by the end of April, I mean, that's massively optimistic, the Olympics still would have been untenable because all the qualifying had been disrupted, all anti-doping had been disrupted, the whole process of preparing for the Olympics in many countries would have been shut down because athletes couldn't train. So. Even pragmatically, the Olympics had to go. And then on top of that, you look at it and you think, well, I don't think you could develop a more potent way to propagate a virus around the world than inviting hundreds of thousands of people into one space and then letting them go out again afterwards. So it was the obvious decision. And But it's such a massive, rare event, the Olympics, that I do understand why they delayed it, uh, delayed the announcement. Yeah. At least. yeah, I think what struck me about the announcement was that, um, and I know that it probably wasn't in their minds at the time, but it was almost when they did announce it, they were sort of saying, well, the reason why they were had to cancel it is because there was so much um, uncertainty around the world for athletes in terms of their, their preparation. So, you know, let's say, for instance, you know, miraculously, we see this thing conquered by April, May, June even, um, which we know is probably unlikely um, as, we, as we sit here now. But at the moment, you know, it, it would be uncertain for many of the athletes to be able to say, do I train? Do I not train? Do I get ready for this? Do I not? And I guess the uncertainty, you had to just put that down and say, okay, look, guys, you know, we're not going to do it this year. The uncertainty is over. Let's focus on 2021. Exactly. I mean, uncertainty is the, is the single theme that I think is permeating most things in the world, business included, sports. Obviously, we analyze it from the perspective of world sports. Uh, which by comparison, I guess, is quite trivial. But 
that is the problem. If you don't know, then you can't plan. And if you can't plan, you can't prepare. And if you can't prepare, how do you compete? So in the end, uh, the, the uncertainty is, is what did for it. And, you know, that uncertainty, I, f- I feel like at the moment we're in that phase where in the military they talk of the fog of war. We're in the early phases of battle. You don't know your own capabilities and you definitely don't know the enemy's capabilities. The whole thing now feels like that. And, yeah. I mean, we, we committed to not getting into the epidemiology and so on because I don't want to add my voice to the growing legion of hacks who think that they're suddenly experts because they read an article on the internet. But it seems to me that the that the biggest issue now is is we're doing what I think is in the best interest short term, but no one knows where it ends. Yeah. So how long is lockdown? How long are we going to have to settle or live the way that we are now? It's impossible to predict and to forecast. So we we really are in a phase at the moment of just day by day, uh, complete inability to plan. And anyone who feels like makes promises and commitments for the foreseeable future is 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 wildly speculating. Uh, here in South Africa, what's interesting, and I don't know whether there's been an update to this, but the Comrades Marathon, which is due to happen in June. As far as I know, I've yet to say they're cancelling. Um, they're still holding out that something will happen and uh, maybe there'll be a change. And I suppose it does, in a way, them not cancelling. I, I think a lot of people right now are looking for a little bit of hope um, and a little bit of positive news. I know that whenever I look on the internet, I kind of just uh, type in coronavirus good news, and, and there is some. Um, I, I think everybody needs a little bit of hope. And I guess, you know, when the comrades will be forced to probably cancel its event, um, you know, the, the longer they hold out, the more it kind of gives me some small sense of hope that maybe some sort of normality will return um, to sport and the world um, in, in the shorter space of time rather than a longer space of time. But I guess that would probably be unrealistic at this point. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I heard some guys say, you know, the virus sets the timeline, not us. So we just have to be agile and flexible enough to respond to that. And we can't impose, I mean, this, this is not clearly not regular flu, despite some people still insisting that it is, <laughs> which is absurd. Um, we just have to, at this point, watch and observe and follow the instructions given out as much as possible. And I hope that... I mean, all the models I've seen seem to predict that we have two to five, two to six weeks of the worst yet to come, and then it drops off. And then the big unknown is what happens in phase two. You know, how quickly do we get back to normal? And maybe even more pertinently, do we ever get back to a normal where things carry on the way they left off in 2019? I suspect not. I, I think that the world has changed and it might take generations to shift back slowly to that point. And if we stick to the sports concept, I mean, what does elite sport look like in the latter quarter of this year and yeah. going into 2021? I, I just don't think that it looks the way that it did before. I mean, let, let's move on to that. You know, we talk about the Olympics moving their date to 2021. You look at some of the stories around immunities and, and uh, creating a vaccine for this thing. Is it realistic even to consider that Olympic Games could even happen in 2021? Uh, uh, yes, I, yes, I'm saying that more out of hope than I think uh, knowledge. Let, let's be clear, because I, I don't know. I mean, uh, six months ago, people would have said we're unrealistic for the Olympic Games to be cancelled in 2020, right? So how can we forecast ahead? What's it, 15, 16 months, and know what the world would look like in, in June 2021? 
maybe we're in phase three of this virus and it's bad enough that the authorities decide that we still can't proceed. I don't, I genuinely do not know. But I think you have to plan for it. I mean, like all the models I've seen suggest that uh, that we, we end phase one sometime in the Northern Hemisphere summer. And then it becomes a question of hopefully having upregulated the health systems overseas and, and even here in South Africa, of course, uh, that we have the health capacity or the healthcare capacity to deal with cases. We can start adopting different approaches. You know, at the moment we've adopted the, it's basically the hammer to this problem and yeah. Beyond this, maybe it becomes a little more subtle and management more like what we've seen in Korea. And if that's the case, then I think they can continue in 2021. But, uh, but again, I, I just, it, it would be speculation for me to guess where this thing goes. Um, I, I guess nowadays no, nobody's an expert. Um, it, a lot of it's just conjecture based on what, what we know. Yeah, because no one knows where it ends, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think. I think that there's enough reason to expect that it does um, and that once the healthcare systems have been increased in capacity and the first wave is over, that we'll be able to manage the second and the third and the fourth waves in a different way that still allows a degree of normal to return and hopefully that normal allows for sports to happen at the same time. Yeah. We were talking um, yesterday while we were talking about doing this podcast today and saying, what would be a possible scenario for some of the first sports to kind of start again? And uh, I think I, I said to you, Ross, that I can imagine almost a situation with a sport like cycling, like the Tour de France and, and some of the cycling events, where hopefully there'll be a test where they can do a test within you know, 45 minutes to find out whether somebody is you know, carrying the disease or, or is infectious or whatever, uh, and then creating almost a sort of a, a race bubble with all of those people that are, have been screened and then potentially having a cycling event um, without crowds on the side of the road, but still being able to be competitive with people that you know are clean. Looking at what's happened in the last uh, couple of months, you know, when this thing first started, tests were taking five days. I've seen reports of uh, machines even available here in South Africa where they can do thousands of tests a day, um, and there are tests being done overseas now in 45 minutes. Is it is it feasible to suggest that we might have sort of cling-wrapped events um, that might be the first ones to kind of break into a norm, some sort of normality down the road? Yes, and and that, that the ability to cling wrap them and then the ability to test within that bubble is what will make or break whether that succeeds or not. So, so, so when I mentioned earlier, like we've adopted pretty much around the world this very extreme approach to isolating people, quarantining them, locking them in their homes effectively, the whole point of that is to prevent the spread of the virus because... Even if, even if a relatively small percent of the population gets it, this virus seems so severe that a small percentage of a large number is still a huge number and it overwhelms the healthcare system. So we're in that phase of lockdown now to, to minimize that. Once that phase is gone and we've, we've effectively bought ourselves time, then you can start to use other strategies and testing is fundamental to those. So what you would be doing there is you'd be testing in order to identify who has it. Then you would have to isolate those people and trace who they've been in contact with. Now, that sequence of four things, test, identify, isolate, contact trace, that can be done within a contained sporting environment. So, for instance, a cycling race like you mentioned, uh, a football or a rugby team, if you want to think about the, the big team sports in Europe and here in the South. The problem is, 
well, I think there's a few problems. One is, can you ensure the integrity of that bubble? So if you, if you think about a cycling event, even if it's a medium-sized one, we're not talking Tour de France now, yeah. but even a medium-sized one is moving through the country and those cyclists are coming in contact with hundreds of people, hotel staff, cleaning staff, bus drivers. There are going to be some spectators because unless you, unless you lock everyone in a village or a town up while the race rolls through it, they're going to be there. And so the moment the virus then breaks through that bubble, then you have to try and manage its spread within it the way that we've been trying to manage it now. So that's the first problem is can you ensure the integrity of that bubble? It's not completely, I don't think, with beyond the realms of possibility that sports teams might be able to be isolated from the communities they're in in order to play kind of a self-contained sporting competition without spectators. Is it worth it? Is the cost and the logistical burden of doing that worth? That's that's a business proposition someone else would have to assess. But in theory, yes, that's where this goes, is, is very aggressive testing, identifying, isolating, and, and contact tracing. And that could happen if, as I say, the two things exist. The testing has to be extremely accurate and quick. Both of those things matter as much as the other. And you have to ensure that that bubble can be protected from the outside world. And that's probably the medium to short, short to medium term solution. And then hopefully, hopefully, a vaccine comes along that makes it all moot. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, putting your your crystal ball in front of you, is is there any, realistically, I, I know I'm asking you to, to put, put a sort of timeline on this, which I think nobody can do, but, you know, realistically, we're not going to probably see professional sport this year and may see some at the beginning of next year if if things go well. Not season so if you think like the season if it's a northern hemisphere season it normally runs until like may june you know that's when football and rugby and so on peak the southern hemisphere is similar in the current paradigm namely the one that is trying to manage this thing by preventing exposure in other words can we minimize how many people with the virus uh, sorry can we minimize how many people come into contact with a, a case that's what this is all about yeah under that paradigm, it's, it's very difficult to see how sport would begin again because imagine you've got two sporting events a week and you're playing matches on Fridays or Saturdays and Wednesdays and on a Thursday, two players test positive. Now, every single person who's been in contact with those team, those players, which is their team plus their opponents, has to then be aggressively looked into or looked at as potential cases. So I, I would be surprised under the current paradigm whether sport can begin. It's, it would seem then that the, the paradigm would have to change away from a let's prevent the spread by limiting exposure to more of a let's prevent the spread by testing, isolating cases and, and tracing here as contact. So that's an effect. In effect, I think that's what lockdown is trying to buy time for because this stuff, again, I can't emphasize enough. This is true of society as a whole and sport is just an element or a segment of that society. So we can't take yeah. sport different from the rest of the rest of the society and the community that it exists in. So that's where we're heading to and hopefully sport is a beneficiary of that. Yeah. 
So let's uh, look more closely at um, sportsmen themselves and uh, how lots of sportsmen are dealing with the, the, the isolation and being locked up in houses and having very limited training time. I, I think that we've talked about professional guys, but obviously there are thousands of uh, amateur cyclists and athletes and soccer players and all those sort of people who are used to being outside and doing what they love. And uh, for many of them, there's a mental health uh, component to that exercise. Where What's interesting with the way that different countries have dealt with this is that in the UK, obviously, as we speak, you can still go and ride your bike and do a bit of exercise every single day. In South Africa, everybody's kind of totally locked down. You're not even allowed to go for a run or a walk. Um, I'm, I'm putting it out there, but for me, is there not a component of this that says being having a healthy dose of exercise every day could be a preventative measure to this? Or is that just silly conjecture? You're talking now about the recreational guy. You're not talking yeah, the about the recreational guy. In other words, it's I, Olympic I'm, planning the change as a consequence. Yeah, I'm the guy that's going to at the moment got an indoor bike, and I'm lucky lucky to have one of those, um, so I can go and sit in the garage for 45 minutes and and have a bit of a spin, um, you know, every second day or so. But there are lots of people who don't have that and uh, who ride their bikes, and there are people who are runners. And you can't. Not very few people in South Africa have treadmills in their homes, and probably very few people around the world do, um, and. I, you know, I guess, you know, mental health versus physical health, moderate exercise is a component, I would think, of staying healthy. In other words, if, you, if you're if you staying reasonably healthy through exercise, is there not an element of that which would help lessen the spread of getting the flu, getting sick and putting more burden on the health system? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yes, and it works in a number of different ways. So we can actually like subdivide that question into a few, maybe two or three different ways to, to look at it. The, the first one is that being healthy and fit and active greatly reduces the chances of getting sick in the first place. That's a general rule where fit, healthy people are less prone to infections and illness than people who do no exercise at all. Why, why, why is that? Well, a few different reasons, and we can probably spend a good 15 minutes in a moment talking about all of the all of the influences that exercise has on the immune system and, and your risk of infection. So, so, so let's 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 park that one. Let's let's if we can for now agree that that's fact, and I'll yeah. explain to you why it's fact in a moment. But the fact is that people who are physically active, chronically, i.e., people who train regularly, are less likely to be ill and infected than people who are not. So that's. That in itself is a reason why you would want a healthy society. The second part of it is once the lockdown begins, and it's called different things, like in the States I saw it called a shelter in place. And so every year it's lockdown. I think in Ireland they're calling it lock-in. The point is you can't can't get out as much as you used to be able to. When that happens, I think that there's a significant benefit to – mental health of being able to get out for an hour a day like our listeners in the UK have been able to up to this point. 
it's, it's really unfortunate and frustrating that some people just cannot obey the rules because they're going to ruin this for everyone. Yeah. When they, when they eventually say you're not allowed out at all, I mean, that's going to be even worse. But there's no doubt that regular physical activity is mentally beneficial for people. I mean, there was a study published in 2018 that I managed to find where they looked at just over 1 million people and they surveyed them for mental health and well-being. And by far the biggest effect, stronger than diet, stronger than sleep, stronger than work, was that the people who were regularly active reported significantly fewer mental health problems. And even when you correct for things like education and income and living area, exercise is the most protective thing that they found you could do. So so that the mental health benefits are huge. And anyone listening to this from a position of lockdown will understand how badly you just want to get out there for a 45-minute jog or walk or whatever it is, just to be outdoors yeah. and experience the outdoors. It's massive. So there's that. And then the third, the third thing, which, which kind of feeds back to the first, is there are some studies that when you – let's say you're regularly active, you don't necessarily have to be training six times a week. But let's say that you are active enough that you're getting 10,000 steps a day, you walk – to the shops, you have a you have a lifestyle that you would consider to be moderately active. When you stop that, you definitely deteriorate in health. So there are studies that have looked at what happens to people when they basically stop doing any activity. Yeah. And your bone density drops, your blood volume drops, your cardiovascular that you actually lose capacity in it. Your muscle strength goes down. And obviously, the more trained you are in the beginning, the, the more potentially you have to lose. But there's no question that being inactive is unhealthy. Yeah. So the biologist, the physiologist in me looks at these lockdown things and thinks we would be better off if we were allowed out for an hour a day. I understand practically that, that enforcing lockdowns and quarantines is made more difficult if you allow that because you know what will happen is is a thousand people will descend on on a public space and all of a sudden there'll be no social distancing. Yeah. So I get that. But in theory, you're right. If if more people could go to parks, mountains, um, open spaces, people would be healthier and would feel better about life. Yeah. And there is a, I mean, there is a physiological reason why that activity in fact creates a better, I mean, when you say that people who are fitter or have regular exercise, are you saying they are less susceptible to even things like COVID-19? Yes. Well, let me be cautious there. COVID-19 is new. I mean, the whole yeah. point is it's novel coronavirus. So there's no study yet on coronavirus and immune function in people with different um, degrees of fitness or training. So yeah. I don't want to I don't want to speculate on that. But in general, what we can say and what is borne out by a fairly substantial body of literature now is that with regular exercise, the overall risk of infection is lower than a person who does no exercise at all. So if you imagined uh, over 365 days a year, your risk of infection is X. If you are physically active, and that means doing four or five training sessions a week, and it's not that you're an elite endurance athlete, we'll get to what happens with too much exercise in a moment, yeah. But if you are regularly active and fit, your overall risk of infection is lower. And that takes the form of many different things. Fit, athletic, healthy people have a better response to vaccinations 
They have a lower degree of inflammation chronically. They have better immune markers and disease states. They are more likely to resist an infection when they are exposed to a pathogen and therefore to not get sick in the first place. Yeah. So there is a substantial immune benefit to being physically active and fit and healthy. And that, that benefit persists when you uh, train even through a period like this. A study, in, uh, a study in 1998 in Hong Kong found that people who were active three to four times a week were less likely to die of the influenza epidemic in Hong Kong than people who were completely inactive. Yeah. And that risk is substantially lower. They were, they were 30% less likely to suffer serious illness than people who were inactive. So the point is, and it might be too late for many of you in lockdown because you haven't had the opportunity, you no longer have the opportunity, but hopefully you'd earned over the six months before this a degree of health that makes you less likely to be ill. So, I mean, if you are listening to this and you are one of those countries that is having a total lockdown, all you can do is train indoors. I mean, there is some benefit certainly now because anybody that's a personal trainer or anybody that's doing any kind of exercise, you know, if you just go online and just search for everything from yoga to um, strength conditioning and to um, beginner movement, all that sort of thing, there's a lot of these online things happening. And in a way, it's kind of, I know people who have never done any exercise in their lives before who are now getting online, looking at some of these um, online training sessions that are going at the moment. I'm involved with a group called PB at the moment that do daily Facebook um, workouts. And the numbers, particularly for the beginner movement section of that, of what they do, is that are, are the best numbers of all of them so it's kind of a sense that people are saying well you know maybe this is an opportunity to kind of get some level of activity going because actually we've got nothing else to do but maybe spending an hour a day doing some movement um could well be one of one of the offshoot benefits of being isolated yeah good for them that's cool i hope they continue doing it when the, when yeah. the lockdown gets released and uh, they can even parlay their, their new homebound fitness regimes into something else you know like yeah if you graduate from doing your 30 minutes a day in the garden to doing 30 minutes a day outdoors and pick a 10k race and then a half marathon and, and maybe this can be your watershed moment. I think that's cool. I guess the, the challenge is, well, that's, that's one group of people who were inactive before. There's another group of people who were active before and who've now had their normal exercise re regimes or routines taken away from them. And they also have to recognize this as a, it's a challenge, but it might also be an opportunity. I mean, how many, how many endurance athletes, and you and I are both in that space, so I would imagine many of our listeners are in that space, uh, marathon runners, cyclists, swimmers, how many of them absolutely neglect strength training? I reckon it's a high proportion. I know I do. Yeah. Um, but now, you see, now I have no choice. And so actually... This period, hopefully of three weeks and not more, <laughs> uh, represents an opportunity to revisit some of the things that I normally neglect. And, and the consequence is that I can emerge from this, in theory, a stronger athlete and therefore a better runner or cyclist or swimmer than I was before. So that's kind of the mindset I think that one has to have to this is, is as much as it represents the denial of what you like to do, it might give you an opportunity to do what you need to do. What's also interesting is that when you think about average person's training, say, for instance, somebody's training for a marathon or anything, you know, longish in terms of endurance, what would you say are the guidelines now for how you should train? Because you don't want people overtraining and put themselves at risk. Where, where does, 
in, in other words, we've talked about the fact that somebody who's moderately active, and when you say moderately active, four to five times a week of a bit of exercise impre improves their immunity. But I would imagine now that you don't want to overdo it in terms of what you want to do. No, so, so the, the exercise and immune thing gets quite interesting then because it's more nuanced. So, so far, what I've told you is that people who are regularly active are less likely to be ill and to fall ill and have infections than people who are not. So there's a protective effect of doing some exercise. Where it gets tricky is that there's also a negative effect of doing too much exercise. And so pretty much universally, and you can go back to the early 1990s to find these studies, is it's been shown that when people are highly physically active, their risk of infections goes up. And so, for instance, here in South Africa in the 1980s, they studied marathon runners, and they found that after a marathon, one-third of all the runners reported an infection compared to only 15% of people who didn't do an infection and who, who had the same lifestyle and lived with those. In Los Angeles, 2,500 marathon runners, this was in 1990, a six times greater risk of what's called an upper respiratory tract infection after the race. So when people do extreme severe exercise, there seems to be a risk of infection that is greater than normal. So now you can almost imagine, imagine there's a graph in front of you. If you close your eyes and you've got on the y-axis going up is the risk of infection, and on the x-axis going across is how much exercise you do. At very low exercise, the risk of infection is high. As you exercise, that risk of infection drops. But at some point, that curve turns back up. And the risk of infection and severe infection goes up for people who train very intensely very often. Yeah. The result is, is what's called a classic J-shaped curve. Now, there's a few different reasons why this happens. Um, Immune system physiology is enormously complex. I remember it from my undergrad, and I, I, th I think I tried to block it out almost as a PTSD thing. <laughs> but what happens, <laughs> what happens during exercise is that we actually have an inflammatory immune response. So all those immune cells, you know, white blood cells, leukocytes, T cells, B cells, they actually increase in number. They proliferate when we exercise. But when the exercise is particularly severe, in other words, it lasts long, and it's intense. What happens is that our, our whole immune system shifts towards what's basically an anti-inflammatory state. So now we're trying to actually, it's almost like the exercise is the stress that causes inflammation. And in response, we go into an anti-inflammatory state. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. The problem with being in an anti-inflammatory state is that you now have an impaired ability to, to basically mount a challenge to the next immune uh, challenge. You, so you can't, you can't mount an immune response to the next immune challenge. So if you now are faced with a pathogen or you have a viral infection that's latent in your body, you are now vulnerable to that more than you would have been had you not exercised. Does that make sense yeah. still? You with me? Yeah, with you. So basically what's, what's happening here is at, at the chemical level, our bodies are shifting towards anti-inflammatory response that might compromise our immune system and make it more likely that we get sick after we've done really severe exercise for a long period of time. Yeah. So the point, the key point for everyone listening to this is that with this virus out there, and we know that it's severe and we know that it's so easy to catch, 
What you want to do is you want to prioritize health, not performance. Because the types of training that you would normally do for performance involve suppressing your immune system. This is why between 30 and 60% of all training days that are missed by elite athletes are due to illness. It's, yeah. it's the most common cause of going to a doctor for an athlete, and it's the most common cause in most sports for why you miss training is because you fall ill. Yeah. Because you're constantly on that razor's edge between training enough to get the benefits for performance, but too much that you actually switch off your immune system. So you have to be very careful here that you don't overdo it and make yourself vulnerable because right now being vulnerable means being vulnerable to one of the worst viruses the world has ever known. Yeah. So that's in, in terms of its combination of infectiousness and severity. So, so just be cautious. And the things that you want to avoid in that regard is that you don't want to train for more than an hour at high intensities. I mean, obviously, this is generic advice. Some of you will handle that with no problem, and I'm not going to tell you not to. But the key point is that the duration and the intensity of training seems to affect that. Yeah. So high-intensity prolonged exercise is probably not what you want to be playing around with right now. Yeah. So, you, I mean, everybody that's listening to this, I think most experienced sports people will tell you that if you're, you know, if you're training on that limit where you're feeling tired, you know, it's kind of, it's taking exercise more as a, a, a to relax and to de-stress and to just get a bit of fresh air into your lungs and raise the heart rate a bit. But perhaps your, your goal event that you were planning this year or looking at something that is, you know, six months down the line, you know, you need to hold off on that and, and not, not avoid pushing the body too much. And I think most of us who know the, in student sports, and I guess this applies to any sports, you, you kind of know when you're pushing it a bit, when you're a bit tired, a bit grumpy, and you're kind of not sleeping properly and your legs are tired. That, that's, you don't really want to get into that space right now. No, if you do, then you want to be really careful and make sure that you do all the other things around that to minimize the chances of infection. And I guess in the interest of disclosure, there is a, you see, even, even here it gets a little more complex because there's a school of thought and there are a few academics who argue this and they say that actually doing the hard exercise, running a marathon is not actually the thing causing your immune risk to go up. The problem is that you're around 2,000 other athletes and yeah. you've, you've got no social distancing in effect. I mean, now the whole world knows what that means. One of the problems for athletes is that they tend to be in environments where it's easier to catch a, a virus or a pathogen. So they are confined in hotels. They're in gyms with air conditioning. They're sharing equipment with people who might have been sick. And I don't need to tell any of the listeners anymore about the dangers of being in close proximity uh, touching your face after you've touched a, a weight that someone else has used. So th there is a there is an element where people who train often and intensely are actually exposed to more chance of getting a pathogen. So it might it might be both effects that not only are you more vulnerable to that infection, but you're also more likely to see it in the first place. And so yeah. so so you've got to manage every element of risk. Yeah. And one of the things, as you say, is understanding that for the next, I don't know, two weeks, two months, who knows, let's hope shorter, it's probably not the time to be prioritizing your performance and going out there and, and challenging yourself three times a week. <laughs> <laughs> now it's the time, to, as you said, to use exercise for stress, use it to maintain so that when eventually the, the, the darkness is lifted, 
you can get back to normal as quickly as possible. And we can talk about detraining and retraining in a moment. But but yes, the, the key is health, not performance. I mean, let's talk about, we talked a little bit about the amateur athletes, but I suppose the people that are most affected by things like that are people at the Olympic level, the, the, the pro sports people who literally their whole lives are not only their, their, their lives and their, their, their daily routines, but also I guess their livelihoods are being affected over the next year. How does this change where they probably most of them have had to go down probably, you know, less than 50% of what they used to? How does that sort of amount of training in somebody who does it full time get affected in a situation like that? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, they'll be massively relieved that it's been delayed by a full year. You know, there was a, if you, you know, we spoke a little earlier about the Olympic um, postponement. I guess they had four options, if I'm thinking back to it now. They could have kept it where it was, and I think that was just untenable and would have been grossly irresponsible. So that was, that was probably the worst option. Option two was that they could have pushed it back, and I saw they were talking about this in October, November this year. Option three was they were they were considering having it in spring, so like doing it in May 2021. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah. Uh, and then option four was they move it a full calendar year back. There's no doubt in my mind that option four is the best one because for an Olympic athlete to try and periodize and plan around these changes is very difficult. I mean, if they'd moved those Olympics back to October, November, those athletes' cycles would have been completely out of sync because <laughs> – they would have planned to have a base period and then a build-up and then a competitive period. And now all of a sudden it's moved back two, three months and you have to somehow adjust. It's not impossible, but it is difficult. And the same thing for May. If you had an Olympics in May, there would be no competitive summer for all those athletes to prepare. So the, the training approach would have had to be completely different. So there's no doubt that in the end they landed on what I think is the, the least worst option. Um, in terms of what happens with training is it's quite interesting because there's quite a lot of research on what happens with detraining. So that, that refers to a person who's done consistently level 100 and who then drops to 50 or 30 or zero. And what happens to that person? So a couple of studies worth, worth mentioning is there was a study in elite kayakers where after their, their world championship season, they were given five weeks off and opportunistically, the researchers said, you're either going to do five weeks completely inactive, you're not going to do anything at all, or, and this was the other half, you're going to do a reduced program where you train for three days a week, very lightly over the five weeks. So remember, an elite kayak is probably doing 12 to 16 hours a week regularly. Yeah. And now they're going from 16 to zero or from 16 to two hours a week. And what they found is that over the course of five weeks, the people who did nothing deteriorated about twice as much as the people who did very little. So what we're saying here is a little goes a long way in terms of maintaining your physiology. So, for instance, VO2 max drops by 11% when you do nothing, yeah. whereas when you do something, it drops by 5.5%. So what is defined by some, what is defined as something? So in this instance, it was a good question. So in this instance, it was three days a week, very light training, 40 minutes per session. And it was two moderate cardio sessions and one weight session a week. And that so mean, would that be sort of 40% of what they would usually do, roughly? Much less, 20%. Because okay. the, total, the total there would be about two hours. Right. 
and normally they'd be doing 15, 16 hours. So you're talking about 20%, even less maybe. Right. So very 10. moderate in comparison to normal standards, yeah. I mean, it's next to nothing. Yeah. That little bit that they did is enough to save half the losses. So one, one rep strength, they did bench press in the, in the two groups, drops by 9% when you do nothing, drops by 4% when you do a little bit. Wow, okay. So, so you can, so once you've, so what we're saying here is that once you've earned the physiology, you can defend it with much less than it took to earn it. Does that right. make sense? Yeah. Same is true. So, so cyclists, elite cyclists do the same thing. They cut by 50%. So this is elite cyclists who did nothing. Let me read that study to you. Uh, for Also for five weeks. And what happens is VO2 max drops by about 10 to 12%. Their peak power output drops by 9%. Their blood volume goes down. Their red blood cell count goes down. The cardiovascular system goes in reverse. I mean, we, we spoke on this part, I think, two or three episodes ago about um, what happens when you train. You, yeah. you can basically watch that movie in reverse to understand what happens when you stop training because we spoke about your plasma volume, your heart gets bigger, your blood volume increases, your enzymes that are responsible for metabolism in the mitochondria, the mitochondria themselves go up. All those things are undone when you train. But if you, if you just maintain a very slight stimulus, you keep those adaptations. So highly trained cyclists, these are guys who were doing 16 hours a week and have been training for five years. They were basically told to do two hours a week. So you're going from 16 to two, similar to the kayakers. Yeah. Over the course of three weeks, no change in VO2 max, no change in heart rate, no change in fat oxidation, no change in work mass. So you can cut by a large, large amount, 50%, and still maintain your fitness gains. And the how same long, thing how, how long players, the same thing can find out in people who do weight training. And so the, the point is your training is constrained at the moment, but you don't have to lose what you've earned. So in other words, I mean, for me, who's riding a bike averaging between seven and eight hours a week, I'm probably averaging at the moment probably two hours a week. I, I, does it apply to amateur people as much as it applies to those elites? In other words, is there a benefit for me by just maintaining, even if I'm feeling bad about should I be doing more, I don't want to do more, but 20% actually, if I can keep going like that for a month, I might not lose as much as I thought I was going to lose um, as long as I don't eat all the pies in the fridge. Um, I'm not going to lose as much as I thought I was going to lose maybe in the, in the month or so that I might not be able to get out. The concept is exactly the same. The scale might differ. Yeah. The model is... The scale always differs with me. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, <laughs> yeah, not that scale. <laughs> you hope the scale doesn't differ after lockdown because then you know it's not gone well. Um, so, so in concept, the same thing is true. Once you've acquired a certain set of physiological capabilities, in other words, your training has adapted you, your heart, your lungs, your mitochondria, your muscles, your nervous system, once you've got the benefits of a, of a degree of training, you can defend losses by doing some training. Yeah. So, so a little goes a long way, irrespective of who you are. Where it's different, and the model at the moment is that the, the more solid the base, the less you lose. So in other words, if you've, if you've earned your physiology over the course of four to six years as opposed to four to six months, it's less likely to deteriorate. That makes sense, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. There's a model also that says that older athletes lose less than younger ones. Woo-hoo. So good we're, winning on, we're winning on that front, you and I at least. <laughs> Um, and there's a couple of other nuances. I've not seen, I'll be honest, I've not seen proof of this. Um, no one's done a study where they've taken a group of cyclists and divided them into recent cyclists, moderate, medium-term cyclists, and long-term, and then detrained them and checked what happened. I haven't, maybe that study exists. If it has, send us a tweet and tell us, but I, I didn't, I couldn't find it. But the point is that everyone benefits. And so even, even, Untrained people. There's one study they did in Germany, which, by the way, would be absolutely brutal to participate in. Now, they could not pay me enough to do the study, but they basically confined 23 men to two months in bed. And they, and in the paper, it says strict bed rest. In other words, they're not allowed out. So you think right. lockdown is bad. <laughs> Imagine being in that study. And the so reason they lot, do this, by the Netflix. way. What's that? It's a lot of Netflix. So that's some serious Netflixing going on there. Um, the reason they do this, by the way, is because when they send astronauts into space to work on the space station, this is basically physiologically what happens to them because there's no gravity. And so they're completely unloaded and they're trying to study how they can mitigate or, 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 or minimize the effects of zero gravity. So they put 23 healthy men in bed for two months. And what they did in this study was they made 48 of them, uh, sorry, they made half of them do jumping exercises three times a week, uh, more or less, uh, for three minutes at a time. So it's literally nothing. I mean, you, you basically do six times 12 hops and counter movement jumps for three minutes, you get back in bed. Okay, so that's the study. And what they found was that after 60 days of bed rest, the, the group who did nothing lose 3% of their bone mass, their leg muscle mass goes down 5%, their knee strength drops by 40%, their VO2 max drops by 30%. So you lose a great deal. Whereas the people who did some jumping exercises, and we're talking three minutes, three or four times a week, no change in muscle mass, no change in bone mineral density, no change in leg strength, and only a 10% drop in their peak power output compared to the other group that lost 30%. Wow, that's astonishing. Untrained person is able to defend physiology and therefore health by doing a little bit. So that's the message. That's the challenge I want to issue to listeners is don't accept that these three weeks are going to cost you everything you've worked for. You can get out and do stuff that reduces that loss substantially. The key is, and this comes back to your question, sorry for giving such a long answer, is the intensity of training seems to be one of the main things that affects that. So if you're currently doing seven hours a week, uh, or before lockdown, you were doing seven hours a week of cycling, two to three hours a week now will be enormously beneficial. But I would suggest that at least one of those days has to be quite hard. Intensity has got to be a little harder than what you're accustomed to. And, And that coming back to what we said earlier, those long, intense, continuous sessions are risks for infection. Yeah. So what you do is you do an interval session where you go on, off, on, off, hard, easy for an hour, hour and 20 minutes. That will be enormously beneficial for your cycling. Yeah. I mean, I, when you talk about a little goes a long way, I mean, that, that study is astonishing because I guess it proves that, 
you know, I've always looked at some of these studies where they talk about how the effects of um, a little bit of exercise has on somebody who's sedentary with some level of skepticism to say, well, you know, if somebody's walking for an hour four times a week, does that really make a massive difference to their health? But that that's an indicator that even that minimal amount of exercise is beneficial. But when we get back to some sort of normality, if you are walking four to five times a week and that's all you're doing, the benefits of that are quite enormous, actually. Oh, yeah, huge, huge. I mean, and we spoke earlier about the mental benefits, which are obviously there if you like exercise. I mean, if you don't like it, it might be mentally negative for you. But but the physical benefits are, are real and substantial, and you have this opportunity to defend them, you know. And that's, and that's true of, as I said, we've spoken about cycling, we've spoken about running, we've spoken about inactive people, kayakers. Another running study, same thing. They took guys who did eight hours a week, they cut them down to 35 minutes a week yeah. for four weeks. No loss of VO2 max over those four weeks. They lose, they lose endurance capacity and their, and their blood volume goes down and their, their, their metab- metabolic system changes. They use more carbs after, after the B training, but, but you can significantly scientific word attenuate or minimize the drop in performance and physiology by doing just a little bit. So go and do just a little bit. Yeah. It's a good message to everybody. Now, here's a question. I know, Ross, that you hate when I throw questions at you that we haven't pre-prepared, but I'm always like to throw the odd one at you. One of the things that comes to mind in this situation, do we know whereabouts in the world or if there is a country that could qualify as the world's fittest country or the fittest country in the world? Do we know if there is a way to define the, that country? and be able to see what the effects on something like what we are going through now would have on a very fit population. Would that be, for you as a sports scientist, down the line, is that something that I think sports science will be looking at and trying to discover? Because I can imagine that is a, a, that is a hot topic among sports scientists. Uh, independent of COVID. Independent of COVID, but also to define how things like infection rates, all those sort of things affect a largely healthier population. Now, one yeah. of the things I've always imagined is that the Italians have live a very healthy lifestyle. They, they eat fairly well. The Mediterranean diet is well known as being a good, healthy diet. It, they've taken the impact of COVID, um, you know, quite badly and, and they've, they've suffered a lot of deaths. Is there, a, is there a way to define what defines a healthy nation or a healthy group of people? Or is that just very difficult to put as a population group? It's, it's, it certainly would be true um, using some crude measures. So you could, you could assess, I mean, BMI is a, is a pretty poor indication of health in an athletic population because every single elite rugby player is obese according to that index, yeah. but actually they're not unhealthy at all. But, but across a general inactive population, BMI has a reasonable predictive value for cardiovascular comorbidities and, and mortalities and morbidities. Uh, similarly, you could ask, I guess, per 100 people in that country, how many have high blood pressure, how many have high cholesterol, how many have cardiovascular disease, diabetes, how many smoke. So there would be, there would be a collection of data on that. Uh, there's no doubt that that would exist. And then you could probably assess how many minutes a day uh, people are active on average in that country. Um, which would give you the opposite side. So it's not risk factors, it's, it's benefit factors, as it were, or risk reduction factors. 
the the scientist in me when you ask that question immediately i start thinking what are all the possible confounders you see that's the that's <laughs> the problem because money is one of the great predictors of who gets sick in an inverse way so in other words more money equals healthier and yeah. so you'll probably find that the healthiest countries are the richest ones so i would guess off the top of my head and i'm going to look this up when we finish I guess that the Scandinavian countries would rank very highly on a, on a fitness health index. The, the healthiest people in the world, I suspect, will be in Scandinavia. Yeah. Um, you're right that the, that the Mediterranean diet has always been said to be particularly healthy. The problem you've got there in, in Italy, again, coming back to this virus now, is it seems that it's an aging population and they might not be active. They might, many of them, be smokers. And there might be quite a high incidence of hypertension. And so even if the diet is good, the other things might completely overwhelm it. So it would be quite a complicated study, but quite an interesting one, I guess, to do. But if I had to guess, I would say that in the top 10, all the Scandinavian countries will be featured. Yeah. Um, I would imagine that potentially New Zealand – well, you see – Ethnic groups will make a massive difference to those data. You know, there's going to be some serious, serious confounders as a consequence of ethnicity in there as well. So, and then even in the States, I mean, I've, you've, I don't, have you been to Boulder? I haven't, unfortunately, but I know you're a regular visitor to Boulder and I've, it's one of my dreams to actually go there. One day we'll go together. I was gonna, yeah, hopefully we can go do some podcasts there or something. Yeah. I was going to go to Boulder in May and unfortunately that's going to be a casualty of, of this uh, virus. But Boulder must be one of the healthiest towns or cities in the world easily yeah but two hours drive from Boulder, you probably find some of the least healthy places maybe not two hours but in the u.s so even within a country there'll be very big disparities so yeah an interesting question but um i don't necessarily know the answer to that one yeah Right, so Ross, I know there's a lot so we're going to be talking about uh, this particular moment in history uh, fairly often, and I know we're probably going to be touching on the subject of this in podcasts going forward. We do apologise that we haven't had a podcast for a while, as you can imagine, trying to get prepared for the isolation we have here in South Africa. Um, I've got a two-year-old who you might have heard uh, just uh, yelling in the background while we were doing this podcast. Uh, it's an interesting when you've got a, a partner who's also in the in the media business doing magazines, as I am, and trying to manage a two-year-old, and uh, we've certainly learned a lot about her in the last uh, couple of weeks but I, I think I'm going to end th this this podcast potentially on a positive note and I, I wrote something on my Facebook page about this a while back that when the virus and I sort of hashtagged it when the virus is gone and we, we don't as you say it's difficult to say when that when that point is reached but there is something about the way that, and I, and I might be talking completely and and doctorish and, and uh, sports scientist here but there is something about the way that this the world has been forced to change through this position where I suspect that people who have always said, one day I'm going to do this, one day I'm going to run a marathon, one day I'm going to go and do that soccer race, I'm going to go and do that tour, which I've always wanted to do this ride from Cape Town to Plettenberg Bay. And, and you get all those things in your mind, something like this, this happens and you kind of go, when this is over, I'm going to do that stuff I've been talking about for years and years. Do you feel the same way? Uh, yes, although I think you've put it better than I had uh, conceptualized it in my head. I think, I think you're right though. I think people have, A, come together in, in a degree of unity. I mean, there's, there's still, as I said, the odd one out who, who still thinks that this is all overblown and isn't worth worrying about and it's overreaction and there's 
onto critics all over the place. But in general, it seems to me like that we've never been as united as, as, as right now. I mean, it's quite remarkable. And, I, and I'm biased, so my lens on this is as a scientist, not in this field, but still, I don't think that the world has ever learned as much about one thing as quickly as they are right now about this. Yeah. You know, like since January the 20th, there have been over a thousand papers published on COVID in various ways, whether it's sequencing its, its genetic material, whether it's identifying how it actually binds to the ACE2 receptor and how it causes disease and vaccines and all this sort of stuff that's going on. We're in a phase now of the most intense learning that's ever happened in humankind, I think, out of necessity. And there's something quite unifying in that. Yeah. And, and then you're right. I think of all the plans I had for this year, you know, like I just mentioned, the plan was to go to Boulder, the plan was to spend a week in Dublin. I had work meetings, I had some things planned in London, I was going to go to Switzerland, and we had conferences in France that have been cancelled later this year. And you suddenly realize that actually you're living this life nine, ten months in advance. Yeah. You're planning it, and then suddenly that gets yanked away from you, and you don't know what to do with yourself. So maybe you're better off not doing that. I'd like to I'd like to adopt the same mentality that you've just spoken about as well as much as I can practically in the world you know yeah great advice I know that uh, Ross you've lost a little bit of what you said at the end there just with our in fact our last bit we were just talking about you obviously saying that uh, you also agree that those things that you those bucket list things that you that you've always thought about you know when, when this is all over do them, you know, don't, don't wait. Um, because it's amazing how easy our freedoms can be taken away from us. So we encourage you to do that. And as Ross has just uh, explained, uh, it's, it's good to keep active, you know, and whether it's doing aerobics in your lounge, I've seen some absolutely hilarious stuff on Instagram. A friend of ours has been doing uh, old school aerobics in her high heels and her uh, leopard skin pants and uh, has got a husband filming her and doing exercises. So there's a good deal of social media out there. I've seen one of the most remarkable um, hashtags I've seen is the garden route. Um, which is cyclists who go around their properties and find little routes. And uh, there's a local South African uh, cyclist called, called Taste Birkus, um, who put up a video of him going around his garden um, on his bike and doing a, a personal best on his garden route. And I, I know that for a lot of uh, cyclists, they, they live in flats and they, they live in little complexes, but they've found ways of keeping themselves entertained and improving their skill level. So what's amazing is the level of ingenuity that people find to find a way to keep themselves occupied, fit, all those sort of things is incredible in this situation that if anything, this tells you how incredibly creative people can be. Mike, did you hear about the, the two people who ran marathons in their flats? I heard about the one guy that ran on a seven meter, was it? I yeah. don't remember how long his balcony was. Yeah, it was a seven meter balcony and he ran apparently a marathon in like six hours, 40 minutes or something, which if you work it out, let me just quickly do that calculation, is 6,000 laps back and forth <laughs> of that balcony. I mean, that's incredible. And then in Wuhan, where it obviously all began last year in December, I remember reading a guy put two tables in his living room and ran 6,000 6, laps of those tables and covered about 50 kilometers. Amazing. Yeah. So people do, people do remarkable things. I wouldn't suggest that myself, but they do amazing things. And again, like just like you said, get creative, you know, like use paint cans and, and bricks and whatever it takes to improvise some weights in your garden and do cool things that you enjoy, obviously. Just 
manage health, not performance, is the only thing I want to say. You know, so sleep well, eat well, train smart, and then when this is all over, you'll be in a position to get back to normal as soon as possible. Well, I think it's a great way to end it, Ross. Uh, Professor Ross Tucker, um, thank you very much again for your time today. And uh, to all of you listening, we hope you keep well, keep safe, uh, keep active, and we'll be seeing you hopefully in a podcast in a couple of weeks' time, maybe talking about something a little bit more positive about how we are overcoming this. Um, but whatever we have to deal with, we hope we can bring you some insight into our view around this topic and sport. But it's goodbye for now. Follow the Science of Sport podcast at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.